You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Throughout my life, I've been blessed enough to have a number of phenomenal men and women just kind of pouring their lives into me. I remember with preschool ministry at the church I grew up in, uh, there was a lady there, her name was Miss Gallagher. I've actually talked about her before because she was such an influence in my life. And she still to this day works with the preschool kids. I went back a few years ago with my kids and there was uh, Miss Gallagher and you know, now she's got a walking stick and a number of complicating issues, which I'm sure I part of played a part in in her life and uh but she's still like just still loving on those same kids and she literally just took her life and she just every Sunday shows up and keeps pouring out into the lives of other people I remember when I was in fourth grade at that same church uh I had a volunteer in in the kids ministry and I cannot from the life of me remember her name I think I know it but I can't remember her name and we used to play this game uh, it was like a bible game and what would go on is uh they would say okay who can find this verse and then they would like say you know Matthew 18 verse 2 or whatever and the first one to find it would win well uh, this game was really set up for me to succeed because I process information very, very quickly and I'm extremely competitive. So I would win. They would literally put the entire class on one team and me on another and I would beat the entire class together. Couldn't beat me because I'm awesome. And um, no, I'm joking, I'm joking. I don't, if you're visiting with this, I'm really not that arrogant. It's close. So, um, <laughs> and then um, I remember that same teacher going to my parents, it's about that time, and she said, your, your son's gonna be a preacher one day. And I remember my parents shared that with me after church, but I thought, well, that's a weird thing to do. I don't wanna do that. I wanna be rich and famous. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, one out of two's not bad. So um, I'm not as funny as I think, but come on, I was a little better than that. <laughs> anyway, so she poured her life into me. And then actually, when I got into high school, uh, I think she became the teacher of the high school ministry, if I'm remembering correctly. And um, my sister was older than me, so she was in high school. And so when I was in middle school, I'd go and visit occasionally in the high school class when our teacher wasn't anywhere. be there, a small church. So if any of you grew up in small church, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, when I got into high school, I'll never forget. So I'm ADHD. Hi, my name is Mandy Kisson, and welcome to Kingsway. I'm ADHD. And uh, you'll figure that out by the end of the sermon very quickly, if you haven't already. And uh, so part of being ADHD, ADHD means you have a hard time focusing, and then when you do focus, it's like hyper-focus, and you become very intense, and you could do more in five minutes than most people could do in a lifetime. It's great for five minutes. It's hard the rest of your life. So um, I was having an ADHD moment in this Sunday school class, and I have no idea what she was saying. My mind was in la-la land, and all of a sudden, um, she asked a question, and I said, yeah, I'll do that, and uh, I just volunteered to teach the class next week while she was out of town. I didn't know that, but it was too late to speak up and tell her I didn't mean to, and so she said, you know what, Matt? I'll meet with you afterwards. I'll give you the material. I'll walk you through this, and so literally, she walked me through the material. Of course, I was ADHD, so the next Saturday came, and my sister said, hey, you remember you're teaching class tomorrow? I went, oh, yeah, where's that material she gave me? So Saturday night, I was up really, really late. I was like a freshman in high school prepping to teach a class filled with all upperclassmen, and I didn't know anything. And I'll just tell you right now, it was terrible. I don't know what I said, but I've repressed that memory, a shock therapy, the whole nine yards. Like, it was terrible. I mean, terrible. It was horrible. It was terrible. But that wasn't the last time people poured into me. I mean, after that, there was Jim. I don't ever forget John, uh, and then another John, and then there was... Uh, <laughs> I just thought of this, another John. And then there was uh, Mark who poured into me. And um, later on in college, there was a guy named Tom. And, and the list would go on and on and on and on. And throughout my life, God just keeps bringing people into my life. And, and they just keep teaching me a little bit more about who God is, a little bit more about what God wants to do through me, a little bit more about what, what others see me. And they just keep pouring into me what they've learned, what, what God has poured into them. They just keep pouring it out into me. And then what God did over time, and it's what he does, he'll do it for you, he did it for me, is God's taken that and he's allowed me to pour into others. 
So that, that Sunday school class when I was a freshman in high school was the, the first time, and it was terrible. I mean, if you were to taste that water, it was probably very bitter. It was not good. But then later on, when I was in high school, my youth pastor, Jim, he's one of the people that you know, poured into me, he came to me and said, hey, I've got this dream. I'm gonna start a youth, uh, once a month youth meeting, and I'm gonna have you and another high school kid lead it. Well, it's a terrible idea, but let's do it. And so uh, we started meeting together, and the other guy dropped out. So it was just me. So I recruited one or two others, and we get together once a month, and it was our chance to not have to go to adult services. So every teenager in the room's like, praise God, why don't we get that going? And um, we would meet together, and my one friend picked up a guitar that his grandfather gave him. He learned guitar, and we'd sing terribly, and we'd do a little lesson. And man, I think back, I remember a couple of my lessons. They were so bad, like embarrassingly bad. They were so bad. And, uh, but it was one of the ways that God allowed me to pour back into others. Fast forward, when I was at my last church, when my internship ended, they hired me as the middle school pastor doing sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And uh, I thought by then I had smeared out, kind of smoothed out the, the, the not-so-good parts. And uh, we every week, we kept kept a tape of the messages, like a tape. Like, I know some of you don't know what that is. There was this tiny little rectangle. It was about that thin, and it was about that big, and it had this little thing that spun around, and it had, like, tape on the inside, and you would put it in something called a cassette deck. Some cars still have these today, ironically. They probably don't work, but you have them. And this is before we moved to CDs and then DVDs and everything digital. And so I'm dating myself here. It's probably not a good idea. But I remember we kept all those. I don't know why. Nobody ever listened to them. And one day, we had switched from CD to tape, and we were getting rid of all the old tapes and cleaning out the closet, and they brought me a massive box of these from a couple years with the ministry. They said, Matt, what do you want us to do with these? And I said, well, you know, before we throw them in the trash, I'll just go back and listen to a few of them and just see how it went. I literally thought in my head, maybe my kids will want to listen to these someday. So I put the tape on, and I would drive to work listening to myself preach and then drive home and finish it. I was so embarrassed. I mean, I'm only two years into ministry, and I, and I literally got through one sermon, and I went, did I just say anything? Like this intro. Uh, and I got to the end, and I went, I literally talked for 40, 35 minutes, and I didn't say anything significant. But I thought, here I am, pouring out my life in other people. Ten years later in that job, uh, tried, kind of climbed the ladder through yeah, middle school pastor, high school pastor, then leading the whole ministry, then a campus pastor, and then eventually Kingsway called me. I came here, and I've been here coming up on nine years here in September, and for nine years, and thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, this is why I'm arrogant. It's be their fault they clap for me. Um, I really am joking. I'm really not. And, uh, you know, I've been pouring out what others keep pouring into me for a long time now, and I've been pouring myself into you guys for almost nine years, nine years. So here's the question. Where does the cup stop? See, if you were to keep this going back far enough, you would find all the way back to Jesus. And Jesus gathered 12 disciples and he poured into them and then he gathers 70 plus disciples and he pours into them. Most likely he poured into the 12 who poured into the, the other 70 and then the 120. And at some point they poured into church leaders who poured into leaders who poured into leaders who poured into leaders. You, you really ever get bored sometimes? Just go read church history, how mind boggling it is. If a dude named St. Patrick doesn't go up north and make his way into a little area called Europe, and then a bunch of pilgrims hop on a few boats and come on over here to the Americas, you and I aren't sitting here today. But it was all because somebody poured into somebody, 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 poured into that person who poured into me, and now it's your turn. The question is, what are you gonna do with what God has given you? That's a question to hang on today. 
You may be saying, what does this have to do with prayer? What does everything to do with prayer? Now, here's why. In Luke chapter 10, verse two, we read this. He is Jesus. Jesus told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus was by far, hands down, the best teacher there ever was, period. It was amazing. I love, just love reading Jesus. I learned so much from him. But Jesus, he would often teach based off what was around him. Hey, look, a fig tree. Let's use that as an analogy. Hey, look, here's a field. There's a man. He, he finds a field one day, and he goes and spends everything he has and buys a field. And, you know, Jesus loved to do that. I want, imagine in this moment, it's harvest season. And maybe Jesus is looking out at just massive fields, miles and miles and miles, acres and acres and acres and acres and acres of fields. And he's standing there with just a few disciples, just, you know, not very many at all. And he's saying, imagine the fields, guys. Now, here's the thing. I'm not a farmer. I don't think about farming really at all, but I, this, this one's easy. Anybody can get this one. If you don't harvest in time, it's all going to die. It's going to overripe. It's going to fall to the ground. Now, part of the good thing is it can help seed the ground, but realistically, that's not how you want it to go. You didn't put in all this time and effort to not be able to bring it all in. And Jesus is looking out this massive field, and he looks at the disciples, and he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll raise up workers to send out into the fields. Before it's too late. That's the implication. Now, where is all of this coming from? Well, for us, it's coming at week three of a prayer challenge. And for those who've been here two weeks, if not, it's okay, we'll bring it up to speed. Two weeks ago, or this is the third week, so two weeks ago, I challenged everybody here at Kingsway and said, I want you to pray every day. So if this is your first Sunday back, you've been out of town on vacation, great. Your 30 days starts today. But here was the challenge. Number one, pray for 30 days. Here's how you're going to pray every morning and every night, first thing and last thing. You don't have to do this for a long time. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever you want to give to it, but just give it something. And the point of this, I gave you week one kind of an outline. You can pray the Lord's Prayer. Just can you use this outline. Week two, last week, I challenged you to do this, to add number four to this, and that is to intercede for somebody. To intercede means to go between, between them and God. To stand in the gap and say, God, maybe it's a believer who's fallen into sin or doubt or depression, and you're fighting for them in the spiritual world, and you're saying, God, they need you. Or maybe it's somebody who's far from God and they don't have a relationship through Jesus Christ and you're going on your knees and saying, God, bring them into a right relationship. And today, we're gonna add one more. We're gonna add one more, but we can't get there yet. We're gonna have to get through the rest of this message to get there. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles, if we will, to Luke chapter nine. If you use a digital Bible, that's great. If you don't know how to navigate your Bible, no big deal. It'll all be right here anyway. So Luke chapter nine, verse, I gotta find it, ah, one, oh, that was hard to find. Okay, Luke chapter nine, verse one. Remember that ADHD thing? All right, here we go. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. It's a great party trick. You should try it sometime. Don't really. Jesus calls the 12. That's the first thing to know. Who are the 12? Well, for those of you who don't know, the 12 are just normal people like you and me. In fact, four of the 12 are fishermen. James and John, they're brothers, Peter and Andrew, they're brothers, and they're fishermen. They literally own fishing businesses. In fact, it's probably been a family business for quite some time. They're working in the family business. One day, it will be their business. They are, by definition, what we would call today blue-collar workers, probably strong, probably a little bit gruff. And when you read Peter's story, you see that come out a lot of times. Peter tends to be a talk-first, think-second kind of guy. He's a big teddy bear kind of guy. And almost every movie about the disciples, that's how they picture Jesus, or Peter. He's always just kind of this big, burly, but really nice, kind of a jovial guy. And that's how he comes across in the scriptures. We don't really 
really know that's what he looked like, but that's kind of how he came across in the scriptures. But there were others in the 12. Uh, There's a guy named Matthew, also called Levi, and Matthew is a tax collector. Now, tax collectors at Jesus' day were considered to be some of, if not the most immoral around. And there are two major reasons why. One reason is because uh, as a tax collector in uh, Jerusalem or for the Israelites, he was almost guaranteed to be a Hebrew person hired by the Romans. The Romans were oppressing and had kind of conquered much of the known area, and many of the Jews did not like the Romans at all, hated the Romans for their oppression and the way they treated them, and they weren't God's righteous rule. But these were their own people who were hired by the Romans, so they despised them because they felt like they were being stabbed in the back by their own brethren. But in addition to that, the tax collectors could add a percent onto the taxes they were collecting and charge almost whatever they wanted. So Rome's taxation was terribly paralyzing, but then the local brothers who were Jewish people would also add extra on top. They just hated them. And they were, for that reason, they were also sinners because they were cheating people out of money. But whenever you see sinners listed in the Gospels, almost always it talks about immoral people and tax collectors. Just give you an idea, it's like, this is as bad as it gets. But Jesus calls one of those dudes to be in the 12. We don't know a lot about the other guys. There's a guy who's a zealot. And in case you don't know what a zealot is, for lack of a better phrase, it's an anarchist. That's in the 12, that's in the 12. Why would Jesus put one of those guys in? Well, it's not quite anarchist like you would think of today. Again, this is somebody who believed Rome was so evil and doing so much damage that they were willing to fight against the government, fight the power. They were that kind of guy. Jesus put one in the 12. There's Judas. We don't really know much about Judas except for the gospels are not friendly to him. They definitely tell his story as it is and he is not a good dude. He betrayed Jesus and never repented, never came back. But we know this about Judas. We're told he's a thief. He's often taking money from the disciples and from Jesus in his ministry dealings. And it makes me wonder, like, maybe, maybe Judas was a thief before. So when Jesus goes and he calls Peter and James and John and Andrew, and, you know, he finds them fishing one day. And he says, I'll tell you what, why don't you guys leave your fish and come follow me and I'll make you fisher of men. Eh. See what I did there? Could you imagine what he would say to Judas? Why don't you leave your thieving ways and come follow me and I'll make you a thiefer of just doesn't, all right, that's a bad joke. Moving on. <laughs> Got to know when it's dumb and just keep moving. Okay, we need more people in this room. You know, when there's less people, they don't, they don't laugh as much. All right, Luke chapter nine. This is important. This is important because Jesus comes to them and he says, I'm going to do something significant in you and it starts now. Now. They've been together, we don't know exactly how long, 12 to 18 months or so at this point. They've been together. Jesus has been pouring into them. But now, remember all these things I've been teaching you? Remember all these things you've seen me do? Now it's your turn. I've been pouring into you. It's now your turn to go pour out what I have poured into you. And don't worry, because you're going to have all the power and all the authority you need. But then look what he says in verse 3. So he told them, take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and no extra shirt. Really? I get stinky, Jesus. No extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Okay, go back to verse three or four with me, if you will. What in the world is Jesus saying? 
I want you to take nothing. Don't go home. Don't pack your bags. Don't say goodbye to mama and the kids. Just go. There's two major things you need to know. Number one, there's an urgency to this message. So in chapter 9 versus chapter 10, we see the same thing twice. In chapter 9, Jesus sends a 12 out primarily to Jerusalem. In chapter 10, he's going to send the rest of the disciples. The number's a little bit bigger, and he's going to send them out to all the nations. But in chapter 9, this is huge because Jesus says, this is such an urgent message. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. It's in the Greek. Just go and go now. Why? Okay, well, if you follow the timeline of history for a minute, this could be really quick. If you follow a timeline, Jesus is born when? Anybody know? December 25th, 0 BC. Right, exactly. Well, first of all, we don't know if Jesus was born December 25th. We don't really know when he was born. There's a whole conversation for another day on that. But there is no 0 BC. I'm terrible at math, but this much I know. You go right from 1 BC to 1 AD. There's no 0 on a, on a history timeline, not on a math Timeline, an interlinear timeline. You go right from one to one. So what year was Jesus born? One. No, probably not, actually. I set you up to fail. Good job. Most likely, Jesus was born between two and six BC. The best guess is, say, four BC, but we don't know with exactness. Most likely, he was born four BC, and the whole calendar is messed up. Now we need to adjust our calendar. We need to have a leap year and go back four years. Wouldn't that be great? I'd be under 40 again. Let's do it. Anyway. So, as a result of that, Jesus began his ministry somewhere around 30 AD, around that time frame. And then, his ministry lasts roughly three and a half years, where he dies on a cross and raised from the dead to redeem all of mankind. But fast forward to 70 AD, it's an extremely important date, biblically, because a ton of what Jesus talks about in the Gospels becomes true, or partially true, in 70 AD, And we don't have time to dig into that too much today. But in 70 AD, the Romans came in, ransacked Jerusalem. It was terrible, terrible. They surround, I won't even go into the details. You read it sometimes, it's grotesque. But they surrounded the city, starved, starved, literally starved the Hebrew people, oftentimes to death. What the Hebrew people did was, oh, just disgusting. And Jesus warned them about all these things that were coming. But it was God giving them plenty of hope and opportunity and saying to the Christians, when you see this coming, get out of there. And the problem is, this is only a few decades away. So there's an urgency to the message because God's pronouncing a judgment on his people who refuse to accept his Messiah that he told them about for thousands and thousands of years, for, through tons and tons and tons of prophecies. Some estimate over 300 prophecies came true in Jesus Christ alone so that they would be without excuse when the opportunity to respond to the Messiah was there. And Jesus is now sending them out with this urgent message and saying, this is serious. A very, very important day is coming. Judgment day is coming. You need to go. Don't stop and grab your bag. Don't stop and grab your shirt. Don't stop and pack stuff. God will provide for you when you get there got to get the message out. This is not simply life or death. This is eternal life and damnation. Anybody who's been at Kingsway for long, you know I'm not what we would call a hellfire brimstone preacher. I think there are so many messages in the New Testament of which it is only one. But when the text goes there, I must go there. There's an urgency, and Jesus is urging his 12, you gotta go. So they go before him, and they prepare the way. See, that's number one. Number one, it's urgent, but number two, it's that last thing I said, and that is this, don't stress. 
God's going to show up. One of my friends and mentors, Dr. John Walker, one of these guys who poured out his life into me over and over and over again, uh, he was in Indiana. At that time, he was living in Colorado. Now he lives in Florida. And at the time, he was visiting Indiana to visit another pastor who he was mentoring. And he was a couple hours away in Evansville. And so I took off a half day of work and I drove down to Evansville and I met with Dr. Walker and uh, went to lunch with him. And I was struggling with some stuff going on in, in, in the church, and I just needed wisdom. I needed insight. I needed some coaching. I needed somebody to pour into me what I didn't know what to do. And I was feeling really, really insecure. You know, all those jokes about me being arrogant. If you're visiting with us, I promise I'm not that guy. I was actually really, really insecure. And I was talking to him going, I'm not sure what to do here, and I made these decisions, and I'm not sure they're right. And he looked at me, and he referenced this exact passage. And then he said something like this. He said, Matt, it's as if Jesus was telling them, you don't need any other resource than me in you. You will be the resource. In that moment, he applied that passage to my life and he said, Matt, you've got to start having confidence in the one who's in you. You've got to start believing in the power and the authority that God has placed in you. And I wonder for how many of you today that's true. We're gonna talk about that extensively next week. But see, that's what's going on here. Go out now. Don't waste any time. Get out there. And by the way, when you get out there, don't take anything with you that you're gonna to have to lean on. Show up and God will show up. It's called faith. So what's crazy is they do it. And they come back reporting, like, it's amazing that these, these demons, they listen to us, like, they actually had to do what we said, just like you said. We healed people and it worked. This is the moment where the disciples became not just followers, people who watched Jesus, but actually became active. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that says, if you tell me, I'll forget. If you show me, I might remember. If you involve me, I'll understand. That's exactly what Jesus just did with these disciples. They've been watching him do the ministry. They've been encouraging him while he does the ministry. And now he's saying, you go do the ministry. Well, aren't you gonna go with me? Nope. I've already taught you everything you need to know. I've shown you everything you need to know. I am in you. You are all the resource you need because it'll be me in you. Go. I wonder sometimes like... Uh, what would have happened if I hadn't said yes as a freshman in that Sunday school room? What would have happened if around that same time I wouldn't have said yes and started serving in the preschool ministry at my church? What would have happened when my youth pastor came to me and said, Matt, I, I want to see you lead these other high school kids? And I would have said, I'm not qualified for that. I wasn't qualified for that. And I knew I wasn't. What would have happened if at the church in Colorado, um, at the end of my internship, when they said, we think you'd make a great youth pastor for us, if I'd have said, nah, I want to go back and see my family. I want to go back to Ohio. What would have happened? I could tell you this. I don't know. I don't know what God's path for me would have been. I just know this. I probably wouldn't have been standing here today. It's been some of the best nine years of my life. Because at each step, I just did whatever God told me to do. That's all I knew to do. Most of the time, I was ill-equipped. <laughs> Most of the time, I had no clue what I was doing. I was just confident enough in God that it was like, yeah, why not? What's the worst that could happen? 
But I wonder how much fear holds you back from finding all that God has in store for you. It's very interesting. In chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12. In chapter 10, he sends out the 70 or 72, depending on which translation you read. And um, at the end, like the very verses right between those two chapters, at the end of chapter 9, what's really fascinating is we have this weird conversation. So we know Jesus is about to blow it up from uh, 12 to 72. He's about to send a bigger group out and do the exact same thing. But then he has this weird conversation. Now remember, Jesus is about to set up this whole thing about fields and needing more workers. But notice this at the end of Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied in his most uh, office-like way possible. You can almost imagine Jesus deadpanning, looking at the camera, and he goes, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's a moment where you see Jim going, great answer, Jesus. What? Okay, so you got to get this. This is like the worst church growth strategy of all time. Okay, Jesus, you got thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming. Everywhere you go, they're crowding you. In fact, you have to move out of the cities, out into the wilderness, and then from the wilderness, out into a boat, because the crowds are getting so big, you can't speak to them all. And you've got all these people following you. You've got a massive movement going, Jesus, get them involved. And Jesus goes, you know what the problem is? we got too many of you. Here we go. We need to cut it down a little bit. I'll follow you, Jesus. I'll do whatever you ask. Okay, well, you just need to know, uh, birds have nests, foxes have dens, but I got no place to sleep tonight. Okay, so is that a yes or a no? And what Jesus just said, to make it really, really simple, what Jesus just said is you don't understand. You think following me is going to be fun because you look at the crowds and you go, oh, that's gonna be cool. You have no idea what it's gonna cost you. Are you ready to leave your home where it's nice and soft and comfortable and come out here because you're going to put your head on a rock tonight outside on the ground? You're going to wake up with a cramped back and the chills. You want to come? That's a terrible recruiting message. But it's the one Jesus puts out there. In fact, he goes on again. It's just like they're letting you know how Jesus filtered through the crowds. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, again, this is your office moment, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What? Jesus, who says that? That's not very nice. Jesus isn't worried about nice. There are three options for what's going on here, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. Number one, the man's dad literally just died, and it was a really big deal, and there's this whole ceremony thing you had to go through, and it's possible the guy heard Jesus was in town, and he goes, oh, my dad just died, but I need to go see Jesus. He goes to Jesus, and he hears Jesus, says, I want to follow you, but I got to go take care of dad. I got this whole ceremonial thing. In that case, Jesus would be looking at him and saying, you know what? Your dad's already dead. You can't do much about it. Why don't you go help those who aren't dead yet? Option A. Option B. The man's dad is not quite dead. He's on his deathbed, and he's saying, my dad is dying. It's that kind of thing. He's about to die, and he's saying, let me go be with my dad. As soon as my dad dies, I'll do the ceremonial stuff, and then I'll join you. And Jesus is looking at him, in that case, and saying, your dad's going to die anyway. Why don't you go save those who aren't dead yet? 
Not quite as nice. It's a little bit harsh, but still not out of their own possibility. The third possibility is the man's dad is already dead. And in Hebrew culture, a lot of times, they would have almost like a year of grieving. And 12 months later, they would do this kind of like final ceremony thing. They'd get together and mourn and grieve. And that was it. That was kind of like the nail in the coffin, so to speak, the last one in order to move on. And it's saying, look, it's my one year. I need to go and grieve my dad. And in that case, Jesus is saying, I don't care about what the culture says you must do. I'm telling you, if you want to be my disciple, do it now. Now, the point, regardless of which of the three options it is, it's all the same. Jesus is saying, you aren't going to have anything or anyone more important to you than me, or I'm not really God in your life. And just to back it up, he gives one more illustration. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Is that that unrealistic? Mama's at home with the kids. Dude comes to hear Jesus preach. He gets all jacked up on excitement and says, man, I'm going to go with you, Jesus. Hang on, I got to run home, pack some bags, tell mama I got to go, and I'm going to come right back and join you. And Jesus looks at him and says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That's terrible advice, Jesus. No. It's the seriousness of the call. My friend, one of my mentors who did this for me many times, a guy named Mark Moore, he says this, Jesus allows no excuses for not following. Desire for security, secular duties, or even family ties, Jesus does not want to be number one. You're like, wait, what? No, Jesus doesn't want to be number one. He demands to be the only one. And there is a huge difference. What I'm about to say is not intended to be judgmental because I struggle with it too and I need the same grace here. But the reason why some of you are struggling to keep this prayer challenge is because Jesus isn't number one. Ugh. That's uncomfortable, but it's true. It's TV, it's video games, it's your family, it's sleep, it's work, it's exercise. It's any number of things, but he's not number one. And maybe the reason he's not number one is because you don't realize the depth of the situation of which this text makes crystal clear. We're living in a battleground, and though you can't see it, you feel it every stinking day. You turn on your news, you turn on however you get the news, whether it's the TV, the radio, or somewhere on social media, the internet, and you see it. Death and murder and kidnapping and rape and abuse and genocide and pornography and families falling apart and you name it. We're living in the middle of a battleground and the battle is raging and we have an enemy who hates us. He hates you and he hates me and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy and he's been at this long before you showed up on the scene. He is so good. He's been studying you since you were just a baby, a child. He's been watching you, watching your family dynamics. He knows exactly what's going to trip you up. He knows if he lays certain traps in front of you, you're going to walk right past him because they aren't even a trap for you. But he knows if he lays other traps in front of you, and he'll take the long game, man. He'll be patient slowly baiting you and leading you into destruction because all he wants to do, we're told, is steal, kill, and destroy. And he's walking around right now just looking for one to pounce on. And he hates you. Oh, he hates you. But the one who hates you 
His hate is nowhere near as profound as the one who loves you. And he's been chasing after you long before you were made. He was with you on those painful nights when you wondered why God would allow this to happen. He was with you in those terrible decisions you made that led to the pain you're feeling right now. He's never left you. He's never failed you. But he is calling to you with an urgent message that says, will you come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. That's why in chapter 10, this happens. After, right after he says this to all these disciples, like filtering through, like, nope, you're not committed, nope, you're not committed, nope, you're not committed. Then he says in chapter 10, verse one, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and he sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse, bag, or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. He gives basically the same instructions. In fact, if you read it, it's actually even more detailed. And he basically says the same thing. Take nothing except for he adds this little thing. And if somebody walks up to you, so let's say they listen, these 70 disciples, listen. They don't go back, say goodbye. They don't pack a bag. They don't grab food. They don't grab money. They don't grab anything. They just start going. And one of their buddies sees them on the road, stops like, hey, bro, how's it been, man? They just look at him and say, gotta go. And they don't even stop. Like, they would be like, those Christians are so rude. No, 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 see, the urgency of what I'm doing takes precedence and priority over everything else going on. And I wonder what would happen if there were a church of 2,000 people that lived their life like that. The precedence and the priority of the kingdom of God trumps everything else going on in this world. So I will drop whatever it is that I've elevated to elevate God and put him in his rightful place. You know why this is important? Let me tell you why. Four. We put up four billboards around our community. We basically put this message on those billboards. Are you looking for community? Are you looking for joy? Are you looking for meaning? Are you looking for peace? We think we have the place to show you how to find those things. You may have seen those. How many of you guys have seen any of these billboards going up around town? Yeah. You may know some of these people. Some of these are families in our church. Some of these are married people with no kids yet in our church. I say yet. If you know Jenna, well, one on the way. We've even got a single mom. These aren't pictures we went and paid somebody to take pictures of beautiful people. We just grabbed our normal uh, funky looking family people and uh, I love every single one of them. That's why I'm teasing them right now. (laughs) And we put them up and said, these are just our people. They're real. They got real life issues. If you know them, you may know some of the stuff that they deal with and they struggle with, but you also know they're good people. They're good people. I love that I get to call them brothers and sisters. But the point isn't, hey, they're awesome. The point is, you know what? They found something here. Maybe you will too. In addition to that, we sent home 40,000 direct mail invites. I don't know if you, anybody here get one of those direct mail invites? Hey, hope, you, hope maybe you got one. If you're watching online, hope you got one. Maybe that's why you're checking us out. Really glad you're checking us out. We're sending another 40,000 to go to the same homes. The, I haven't got one, by the way. I got invited to church here. That's why I'm here preaching. I decided to come. And um, 
We don't choose who they go to. It's just a direct mail you pay and they get sent out. This is the front of one of them. And it's just saying, hey, here's what's going on. We've been making a huge push to August 5th and August 12th. I don't know if you know why, but it's because we've been making an investment for almost the last two years to say, you know what? It's time for our community to know that Kingsway is here and we love you. And we're making a huge investment so that they'll know that. We've been making a huge investment in renovating the adult space over there. Did you see the signs when you came in today? Maybe you didn't notice them on your way out. You gotta take a look. Don't they look amazing? Look amazing, yeah. Did you notice the new carpet, the paint? Man, I, ran, I was in between services. I ran into a dude, and he, he, was, he was telling his wife. He was all excited about the paint color. I was like, oh, I was curious about that. Is this going away down this ramp down here? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I finished this part up here. I said, you did that? He said, yeah. He said, oh, I love painting. Oh, he said, I, I love to just serve my church. I was like, man, I got to get you on stage. Like, this is awesome. But why are we sending out another 40,000? Why did we send the first 40,000? Because studies say, and it's hard to nail down the number, but there are somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people that we know within a five-mile range of this campus who do not have a church. They don't know Jesus. And that's not like, a, oh, well, we hope one day they find one. No, that is an urgent message. Should Jesus return? Should they get sick and die or in a car accident? Should tragedy occur? There's an urgency to what we're doing. It is so important. I don't know about you, but I want to go to heaven when I die, and I want to take as many people with me as I possibly can. And that's what we're trying to say to our community. We love you enough. We have the answer, not just for your eternal life, but for this one, too. I don't know if you notice this, but we've invested like $500,000 in this building over the last couple years. We improved our kids' spaces, our adult spaces, our signs, our carpet, our paint. We're building a new coffee bar. We're reusing the coffee bar other people built for us. We're not done yet. The school's made an investment in that. You may have seen the concrete out on their end of things. It looks fantastic. Why in the world are we doing all of this? Because we believe that we have the message of hope for the entire world. Not Kingsway alone. There are great churches in our community that have the message we have. But we believe God has placed us here for a purpose, a reason. Here's my fear. I would say, name your fears. Name your fears so that you can deal with them in faith. Here's my fear, and then I'll tell you how I'm dealing with it in faith. Here's my fear. It'll work. I'm not joking. That's like my biggest fear. Like, on August 5th and 12th, 200, 300, 500 people are gonna show up at Kingsway, and they're gonna be like, wow, this building is amazing. And then they're gonna find closed classrooms for their kids. I I have to confess, I didn't realize how bad it was. I, I owe you an apology, church. But this week, when I sat down with Rebecca to make a little video, if you saw it on Facebook, make a little video letting, hey, we need like 50 volunteers. Thank you for those who stepped up. She told me, she said, Matt, if things don't change in certain services, we're going to have to shut down classrooms for kids. We don't have enough volunteers. This is the worst way to recruit volunteers. In every training I've ever taken, they say, don't do this. But we are at such critical levels that I'm saying to my church, I need God to raise up a few. Now, let me just be clear. If you are dangerous to kids or you hurt kids or have any intention of hurting kids, we will find you and you will not make it. I'm not joking. We do a full security background in every single person. We make sure that there's accountability 24-7. Nobody ever gets alone with a kid. If that's what you have in mind, go ahead and move along. But if you like kids, if you even love kids, if you love kids that aren't your own more than you love your own, you are perfect What I'm wondering is, are there 40 people in this church 
willing to take what's been poured into them. And pour it out to somebody else. Because if you don't, it dies wherever it stops. And when it dies, you know what happens to water that just sits in a cup? Stagnates and evaporates. It'll either turn moldy or it'll just become dry. Your life is the same way. If you don't pour out what others have poured into you, sooner or later, your cup of water will stagnate and you will die. That's a tragedy that we can't let happen in our church. That's why, right now, take out your cell phone. Do me a favor. Or your iPad or your tablet or whatever you use. I just want you to text this number. I want you to text serve, S-E-R-V-E, to 317-565-4911. Look, we don't just need kids ministry volunteers, but it's the biggest one. I'm afraid to mention that we need people up here on stage and we need communion servers and we need people in our parking lots being smiling faces to our guests who are coming. We need all those things and more. Will you do it right now? All right, so here's our prayer challenge. We're gonna close right now. So we got the same four things. We're gonna commit for 30 days, pray in the morning, we're gonna pray at night, we're gonna intercede for those uh, who are far from God or those who have walked away from God and they're struggling in sin or, or depression or whatever it is. We're gonna pray for God to bring them back. And then we're gonna pray this. We're gonna pray for God to raise up workers to send into the fields. And I just gotta tell you right now, this is a pruning prayer. It will be impossible for you to pray this for somebody else if you're not doing it because God will reveal to you in each and every prayer how you are being a hypocrite. That's why I did it. Because I love you and I wanna put you in a position where you have to look at your heavenly father and say, God, would you do for others what I'm not willing or God, would you change me? Either move or move me, God. You gotta do something. And here's how we're gonna close and it's the most weird and awkward thing in the world. See, here's what I know. I know there's some people visiting with us today who decided to not wait till the fifth. Welcome. You picked a really weird Sunday to come, but we're really glad you're here. This is not a normal Sunday at Kingsway. We were spending this whole series kind of preparing our people for the 5th and the 12th, but knowing you might come, but we want you to hear the truth of the message of the gospel. And here's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna close like this. We're gonna get on our knees. Some of you are gonna need to get into the aisles. Some of you may need to come down to the, to the front of the stage. Some of you might wanna turn around because there's really not a good way to kneel unless you're facing the other way. That's gonna be awkward because some of you may say, you know what, I'm not gonna kneel. I'm gonna sit. I'm gonna stare or whatever it is, that's fine. But we're gonna get on our knees and we're gonna beg the Lord of the harvest to move in this place. Join me. (sighs) Oh, Father. community has apartment buildings popping up all over the place. West Plainfield, Father, has thousands and thousands of new families coming in and continuing to come in over the next 10 years. That's not to count the people who already live here who don't know you. Oh, God. Oh, God. Use this church 
on the corner of 10th and Dan Jones. Use us, God. Use us. Father, we pray right now for those in our community who are feeling the weight of hopelessness and lack of community and lack of peace and lack of meaning in their life and they're chasing everything that they can to find and try to fill that hole and they just can't find it. But God, we got the answer. We got their answer. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And he's alive and he's well and he's active and he's chasing them and he's pursuing them. And God, I pray that you would bring them here. Bring them here. Reveal yourself to them. But God, I pray that when they come, they would find the most loving and hope-filled and engaged body of believers that this world has ever known. Here's my bold prayer. My bold ask, Heavenly Father, is this. For the first time, perhaps, in any church's history, in the history of churches, I pray, God, that we have so many people signed up to serve that we're not even sure what to do with them all. That God, for the first time ever, the, the staff are literally canceling all their meetings this week just to figure out where to plug everybody in. You, God, you create that problem and you give us wisdom and we will solve it. But God, I pray for this room. I pray for those who profess faith in Jesus. I pray that they would hear the urgency of the message, of the call, of the gospel. And I pray, God, they would respond to the prayer, to the need to serve. There's a massive field. Send workers, Father. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. God bless you and have a wonderful week.